I'm Jamie Cameron, an editor here at the magazine, and today I'm joined by our marketing and editorial assistant, Katie. You're new to the magazine. Katie, do you want to introduce yourself? How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, I've been there a month. It's been absolutely fantastic. We should do one of these kind of like, you know, um, uni kind of icebreaker things. It's like, tell us one thing about you. You do, you know, you do this, you do that. My go-to. Yeah, what was, is your go-to? Oh my God, my go-to was the fact that we had a series of cannibalistic and incestuous gerbils as a child. Okay, well that, that wasn't quite what I was expecting, <laughs> but we'll go with it. It's been a while since our last episode. Um, our new June-July issue is out now. And we are delighted to be joined by one of our contributors for that issue, Phoebe Hurst. Phoebe, how are you? I will spare you the kind of icebreaker thing that I just like inflicted on Katie, but how are you today? Yeah, I'm really good. I feel like I can't compete with the cannibalistic gerbils. Like, that's an amazing way to start. That should be a short story, I think. Uh, definitely. All right, well, to kick things off straight away, let's have a reading from your story, The Dump. Um, listeners can find it, as I said, on our June-July print issue and online on our website as well. First of all, can you maybe tell our audience a bit about the concept behind the piece, maybe introduce it for us before you read? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the way I would describe the dump is it's kind of like if WikiLeaks happened, but if it was for all of our WhatsApp messages, our Twitter DMs, Facebook messages, and kind of the terrifying stuff that ensues when everything we've ever written on the internet that we thought was private is suddenly public. So yeah, I think that's that's the best way to put it. Amazing. Well, feel free to, to take it away with the reading. Great. The dump. Before it all happened, there was nothing I wanted more than for it to happen. I was evangelical about it. Shameless, you might say. There I'd be, standing in line at the post office or eating a falafel wrap, and the spirit would move within me. The dump, I'd tell my audience, was the greatest thing that could happen to humanity right now. It was our Watergate scandal, the most comprehensive challenge to state secrecy since WikiLeaks. The dump was going to do more for the voiceless and powerless of this world than if Jeremy Corbyn had been elected or Bernie had made it to the White House. The woman who just wanted to buy stamps would edge away. The guy in the kebab shop began serving someone else. I'd wiped sweat from my cheeks. No more classified documents or spy cops or government cover-ups. No more secret emails. Screw the man. Expose the bastards for who they really are. Actually, by this point, I'd be shouting. Forget Bernie. The dump went way beyond anything a left-wing government could achieve. Imagine England winning the World Cup, but instead of the warm lager and jingoism, our prize would be information. Every dirty deal any politician ever made, every sordid photo, we'd know all of it. It was around this time that I fell in love with Tom. One night, I locked the two of us in a bathroom. We were at Amber's house for a party, a birthday or housewarming, I don't remember which, but if you searched her name on the dump now, you'd find all the details. The WhatsApp messages to each guest, the time and number of kisses going up or down depending on how much she liked the person. Being her oldest friend, I got neither kisses nor a suggested arrival time. I was at her house most Saturday nights anyway. I lifted the toilet lid and yanked at my skirt. Tom backed against the towel rail. Babe, you know I want to. It's just that there are people right outside. I laughed and pulled my underwear down. His face was confused, perhaps excited. Music pounded on the other side of the door. No, not that. I need to empty my moon cup. Okay. I want you to see every part of me, I said, squatting over the toilet. I began fishing inside myself for the silicone stem. Tom swayed slightly. I am pretty intrigued about how it all works. So basically, you use it like a tampon, but the cup is refillable. I found the end of the menstrual cup and gripped it with my thumb and forefinger, then pulled. A tiny, wobbling container of blood appeared from between my legs. And when it's full, it looks like this. Now I just empty it and rinse it, then put it back in. 
there was a loud bang on the door, followed by Amber's voice. If you guys are shagging in there, you need to hurry up. Some of us have to pee. Tom and I looked at each other and laughed. I tipped the contents of the moon cup into the toilet bowl and flushed, then shoved it back inside myself. Tom opened the door and disappeared, leaving me alone with Amber. I was showing Tom how moon cups worked, I said. I want him to know everything about me. Amber narrowed her eyes. That's impossible. Dumpers, they called us before it all happened. People who believed in the dump. Thank you so much for that, Phoebe. So I wanted to start off with a general discussion about the inspiration of the dump. It, it almost goes without saying, but this sort of tech we might be able to produce, it feels really frighteningly real. So I'm wondering when the idea for the story first came to you, did it arrive in your head fully formed or was it developed over a longer period of time? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you kind of pull out the tech element because in a strange way that kind of came second to me when I was thinking about the story. First of all, I wanted to write about the whole idea of knowing and not knowing and as human beings what we're prepared to kind of be okay with not knowing and then the human drive to always find things out and want to know everything and research things um, so that was kind of my starting point and I was just thinking about how you know as a, a person living in the world you do have to just deal with so much that you don't know like we don't know whether you know God exists or why we were put here in the first place but you just kind of have to ignore that and get on with your life to a certain extent. So I was kind of thinking about that. And then the technology element sort of came separately when I was thinking about how nowadays there is so much more that we can find out that we never would have been able to before. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch like an old rom-com or something and like the woman sitting by the phone wondering what the guy is thinking. And today that's almost unimaginable because obviously you could go on Instagram or look on WhatsApp to see when they were last, you know, available. So it, it does feel like suddenly we have access to so much more information. And the question is whether we kind of indulge that human desire to know everything or whether we're OK with not knowing things and how this impacts human relationships as well. So I, I put a relationship between the narrator and her boyfriend, Tom, at the centre of the story because I wanted to ask how, um, you know, this this desire to know things, how that impacts when you're in a relationship with someone else. Like, are you OK with not knowing things about them or will you go on Instagram and stalk them or try and find things out. So, yeah, that's a roundabout way of where I kind of got there. I find that really interesting that you talk about that the idea for the relationship came before the technology because there is this, there's a relationship between Tom and the narrator, but there's also a relationship between Amber. And I think at the start of the story, there's this sense that really Amber knows everything about her already. And by the end of it, that's kind of twisted. But this metaphor of the moon cup, and as uh, the narrator repeats in that first excerpt you read, you know, I want to know everything about you. Where, where did that kind of idea for that first scene come to you? Um, because, I mean, the, the idea of being at a house party with people knocking on the door is certainly a very kind of real and, uh, you know, believable scene. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's really what I was trying for. And I rewrote that first scene many, many times. And I had it starting in a completely different way before. But then I realised that with a short story, you have so little room to manoeuvre. You really need your first scene to be with a bang. And I thought, what better than a cup of blood basically <laughs> like this is a great way to start the story but also there's something it is very evocative you know it's probably the most private one of the most private parts of your body and just wanting to share that with someone and the narrator is an idealist I think you know she really at least at the beginning of the novel she really believes in the dump and she doesn't think about the consequences that will happen when it does happen she almost believes that it's not going to happen because it is such an idealistic dream so I think that's why she is someone who would 
push their boyfriend into a, a bathroom and show them <laughs> this very intimate part of themselves because mm. she almost can't see the negative consequences of this. And I think Amber is someone who is able to see actually, you know, you can't you can't be an idealist. There there will always be roadblocks to that. So yeah, I think that I wanted the moon cup scene there as well. And also there's kind of a physical element to it too. Like it's physically inside your body. It's, it's private. Mm. And I think the narrator and the dump as well, the people behind the dump um, who I I make them an ethical hacking group who are kind of anonymous. They also want to expose everything that's hidden and put it into the world. Do this for idealistic reasons also. You know, it's all about exposing government corruption or things that have been hidden that can impact people negatively. But the consequence also is that ordinary people are swept up in it too. So I thought the moon cup was a good kind of symbol of that, the, this you know, thing that's inside us and is then going to be retched into the real world as well. Yeah, it's it's funny. My next question, Dora, you published with this earlier this year as well, Sky Blue, which is online that people can find on the website. It's about this you know, conceptual art exhibition in which people enter and then their kind of phones and technology is not allowed in. And over the course of an hour, they kind of slowly lose the plot. That and then alongside the dump, maybe less so in the, in the context you've described it in. But I kind of feel like you maybe can be placed in this loose genre of speculative fiction whatever you want to call it. So I was just wondering, what kind of writers do you look to then? Because the way you've described it in the context of the personal relationships is very different to some of the kind of typically speculative fiction writers we have out there, or indeed the kind of cinema or TV we have out there. So kind of, who did you take inspiration from for, for both elements of the story in, in terms of style? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. I would say number one for me is Don DeLillo, especially, mm. I think his short stories are amazing. He's one of those amazing writers who can do enormous tomes like underworld which is yeah. what like 700 800 pages yeah. long I've never finished it i have to admit really? yeah, i, I know read it's... it twice i hate to say oh, okay. well now i feel so i have to yeah um but yeah he's he's kind of one of these maximalist writers but then also his short fiction is just so kind of pared back and very very eerie and he obviously has that classic delillo style that i've probably mimicked really badly without even realizing that i'm doing it so so obsessed with him but he is a writer who i think does touch on technology his new mm. book the silence in particular um and even something like white noise um back when it was published was very much about how technology and i guess consumerism as well was impacting us um but he he manages to do it while keeping i think human relationships at the center of the story yeah i think totally it's so as soon as you said that that, that makes a lot of sense and the white noise comparison as well i think that the kind of the comedic um like aspects of that definitely come across yeah. in in this as well yeah. yeah i feel like people always forget that don delillo is really funny as well or yeah. at least i find him funny and i think the dialogue i've definitely learned a lot from him about dialogue and how that can be funny and then it also pushes the action forward and you know especially a subject like the dump which is quite conceptual you know it's basically just a big website where everything mm. is deposited and writing about a website is difficult because it's just online and writing about the online world is difficult so i think that's why i knew i had to have two characters who are in a relationship at the center of it what did you think of the white noise adaption by the way i have to ask <laughs> i i thought it was very faithful to the book like mm. it lots of the dialogue seemed to be reproduced exactly, yeah. yeah and i liked i liked the strangeness of it it was kind of not you know not like a normal film mm. but i think it's such an impossible film to adapt for the screen i think it was a it was a good job no, that's, I think that's a fair point. One of the things that I liked best is a particular line in this story that I think is really, really clever, where you talk about how or the narrator says that the dump had become boring to them in the kind of way that extreme hypotheticals do. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting kind of comment or bit of self-reflection on this kind of writing more broadly. 
Um, how, how did you avoid the pitfall that you're kind of acknowledging with that line? And I mean, you must have read some some bad fiction in this mold as well. So like, where, how does it go wrong? And how did you try and avoid it go, going wrong in terms of this kind of extreme hypothetical, this this concept of the dump that is so you know kind of ineffable? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I hope I, I don't know if I have necessarily avoided that no, I think that you did, pitfall. I think you did, yeah. Um, but I think it's... It's difficult when you're when you are writing fiction or writing anything that is so attached to the current moment and current technology. So I was definitely very aware that perhaps in a few years time, this story will feel really dated. You know, maybe my references to Twitter won't be as funny anymore mm. um, if they ever were. <laughs> maybe, you know, it will, it will feel like the moment has passed. So I think it comes back to that human relationship thing. I had to make sure that was genuine and I had to make sure the whole thesis behind the story, which is this idea of privacy private the private and public and knowing and not knowing that had to be solid and then the other stuff could kind of fade or date but the 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 kind of central concept of the short story will hopefully stand and yeah when it comes to the idea of you you kind of getting bored and moving on from extreme hypotheticals I think I really wrote that line I was really thinking about the narrator as someone who is young you know younger than me perhaps has been on the internet a bit too much kind of got swept up in um, very idealistic, you know, ideas, maybe hasn't experienced the real world so much. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's great to be an idealist. But again, it comes back to her not thinking things through and uh, perhaps just being a little naive about what would happen. Um, and I think you do do that when you're younger, you kind of cycle through definitely when you're a student, you go through many phases, or at least I did, you know, you're reading so much and absorbing so much, you're almost trying on these different out outfits, like different like philosophical outfits and seeing what fits for you um so yeah I, I, I kind of wanted to put that in there to introduce this idea that perhaps she is kind of younger and, and she's she's going to be swept up in this thing and, and not realize how it will impact her life so kind of rounding back to just the, some of the broader discussion points we've just had I, I wanted to touch upon sort of the contemporary comedic writing style it feels like this very sort of quoted in experience of London being at house parties uh, what it's like to maintain relationships, especially when you're sort of in that early 20s phase, uh, navigating yourself and other people as well. Um, I particularly loved the the references, as you said, um, Prince William uh, messaging Judy Dench for nudes. Uh, that was a particular line we loved. Mm. So I want to ask what the process of leaning into that sense of comedy and that ultra modern style is like for you. Um, I, I gather that it's probably quite different from what you're doing at the moment. Mm. Yeah, um, it was definitely something that I I almost do without thinking too much just because of the background of the other types of writing that I've been doing as well as fiction writing. Um, so I'm currently working at The Guardian, um, which is obviously a, a much more kind of newsy style of writing, which is very different. Um, but before that, I was at Vice and Vice is really known for this very internet-influenced, um, youthful style of writing, which... Um, is very kind of current and reflects the lives that young people are living. So I was spending a lot of time editing that work, writing that kind of stuff myself. So it, it almost is second nature when I go to write fiction that some of that seeps through. And I think it was a case of me just trying to filter what's actually going to serve the story. And when am I just making a joke? Because I think I'm still a vice writer just trying to make a joke <laughs> because the reader isn't going to respond to that. I think if you're employing fiction... I've realized you really, uh, employing humor, you need to do it in a way that's going to support the the short story you're writing. So um, it was very much a case of, you know, the first draft was really long. It had way too many 
meandering jokes and references and and lots of stuff that just need to be paired back and paired back. So every reference that I put in there, I was just trying to ask, is this going to be supporting the idea that I've got about the dump being this huge, scary thing that's going to sweep people up and and we're not really ready to to deal with it? Um, and if that doesn't work, then I think it just needs to be removed. But generally, it's the kind of writing I like reading as well. I like reading writing that's funny, and I think literary fiction can be really funny, and my favourite authors definitely do that. What was the joke that, that hurt you most to cut? Or can you not remember <laughs> off the top of your head? Because I'd be, I'd be interested. <laughs> I had like a whole scene. So I'd already referenced the newsroom, which is... I, I love that bit because that TV show is just the most kind of like cheesy, sulking it's stuff. Awful, it, it's it's it? her, I think they play Fix You by Coldplay in yeah. like one of the climaxes to one of the it's episodes. Really it's really awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you got that too. But yeah, it's a, a really terrible show in my opinion. So I, I thought I had to have that. I, then I had another scene that was... Maybe it wasn't so much funny, but it was about Tom watching The Wire and they, they're they obviously tapping the, um, you know, one of the gang's phones mm. and it was just a bit too laboured. I, I almost mm. felt like I'm being a bit too clever by trying to be like, I've watched The Wire and insert <laughs> it into the, the, the story and it just didn't work. So, and I think really you can only have two TV show references in a short story before it feels like you're just, yeah, <laughs> the reader will just get bored and go and actually watch a TV show instead of reading the story. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, I do think... I. For what it's worth, I think the lines really work. It is really funny. I mean, there's the... I think Amber has some great lines where she talks about, what's it like, you know, why are we always going for brunch? It's so heteronormative <laughs> or something something like that. Um, I'd be interested to know which of the characters you most enjoyed writing out of, kind of Amber, Tom, and, and then obviously the narrator themselves. Do you kind of tend to base your characters on people? Is is Amber, you know, based on a, an amalgamation of friends <laughs> of yours or, or yourself or someone you know? Um, I feel that when I write characters, I really enjoy having not too many characters. Um, I like books and I like, I think my writing is best because I'm probably not clever enough to hold too many ideas in my head. But I like it when there's just, you know, two central characters who do have a strong relationship and then perhaps a third character who is in there kind of circling what they have. And I think with this story, you could argue that Tom and the narrator are the two central characters but then actually I wanted as you go along for you to realize more and more will be revealed about her relationship with Amber and you start wondering whether actually are those two the central um, pairing in this story so that was what I was kind of thinking of I think that's how the characters came to me they're definitely I'm sure they're an amalgamation of lots of different influences and people and things but I was the, the way that I started writing out the story and thinking about the characters was thinking, OK, I need to have three people here uh, in, in a kind of triangle. But the narrator herself will be kind of ambivalent about or she she won't tell us what they both mean to us, really. Like at the beginning, she is she says she's in love with Tom. But again, in a similar way to the way that she's in love with the dump, it feels quite childlike and kind of infantile like oh I'm in love with Tom now oh I, I love the dump it's it's kind of like she's going to be jumping around and I wanted Amber to be a more steadying presence who is kind of just there and almost sees through all of the narrator's various you know phases or whatever it is to be a more kind of sober presence and yeah the other the other thing I wanted to do with the characters was to leave you as a reader not really knowing what their relationship was so that you know, I, I deliberately didn't name the narrator because I want you to kind of leave the story thinking, well, wait, what's her name and what relationship does she have with Amber? Or maybe make up your own decisions or maybe wish that you could go on the dump and look them all up and find out what 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 their relationships were. So I, I wanted to introduce that ambivalence into the characters as well. 
I mean, there's that line towards the end, which, yeah, it's like, what exactly is happening in, in Amber's bed between the Naruto and Amber, and, and where does everyone stand on that? But that, no, that, I think that works. Well, I think going back to the human element of it that you spoke about earlier and sort of this characterization, I've just finished watching the latest series of Black Mirror on the yeah. tube in the mornings. So <laughs> I've kind of got that in my head. But I, I wanted to talk to you about the inspiration for, for the story more broadly. I think the best speculative stories do have that human element. It's not necessarily the tech itself that's the problem. It's the sort of human corruptibility of it. So I wanted to talk to you about the, well, just how far we're willing to go with tech. Ethically, do you think we'll, we'll ever go to the place of the dump? Yeah. I mean, yeah. would the Guardian publish it, right? Because <laughs> did you guys do Edward, uh, published Edward Snowden stuff, that was right? The Guardian, yeah, yeah, yeah so investigation. If yeah. that came across your news desk, how, how would you react? It's <laughs> a very good question. I think it's it's interesting what you're saying about the human corruptibility element. Like the dump in itself is not a good or bad thing morally. The dump is just a website where everybody's emails and messages and everything is deposited. What what causes the trouble is the fact that people decide to use the dump to look things up and use that information and and share it with people. So, yeah, I, I think that's the interesting element. The you, you decide what the thing is that's going to happen, the technology, but then you have to think about how human beings are going to react to it. Um, and I, I think that's, yeah, I don't know if it would ever happen. I'm sure the dump probably would happen. Like, it's, I'm sure the technology and the capability is there. Um, and I'm sure you could write 10 different short stories about the different reactions that people could have to it in a way. Um, and one of the funny things about publishing this story is how many people have said to me, oh, my God, I hope the dump doesn't happen. If it happens, I'll just be exiled. I, I don't know what I'll do. So, it, it, yeah, it's interesting that we've all got this very kind of human reaction to a technological thing that could potentially happen. But, you know, we don't know. And equally, we probably wouldn't change our behavior. You know, I don't think any of us would really stop messaging or stop doing things on the internet like we're just very human and, and fallible in that way um so that there's a lot to explore there yeah i should say because at the end of the story everyone just ends up kind of accepting that this is the new reality right and i think we do have this incredible ability to just end up carrying on with with how things go and you know all the politics if all the politicians and everyone has been implicated in kind of dick pic scandals then, yeah. then you know where do we go from here like yeah. we're all in the same boat so i guess we do have this yeah, capacity to just level out as a, yeah. as a society which is kind of frightening and also maybe comforting to an extent yeah, yeah I didn't I, I thought a lot about writing that section which is towards the end when it's kind of you know everybody gets used to all these scandals coming out and people get almost blinded to them or numbed to them and I, I really didn't want it to sound too nihilistic or depressing and just thinking oh people are just going to accept that human beings are always awful I wanted there to be a kind of note of hope there and I hope that the ending that the narrator finds with Tom does show that I hope people can find a way to live with, I mean, it's all about finding a way to live with human um, destruction and human bad behavior and the ugliness that being human is and kind of not necessarily accepting it. Like you should still have some of the idealism that the narrator has at the beginning of the short story, but also, you know, realizing that this stuff is going to happen and you have to try and find a way to work with it and make the world better, even if it seems like there are just so many dick pics and just <laughs> they're inescapable. What was the metaphor you used with dick pics in there again? It was something about it being kind of lined up like balls to tip across the yeah. world three times over or I something love the like image. that. Yes. I think with, with apps like TikTok, I've seen so many sort of almost doxing videos of filming people in public, surveilling them in this sort of really Orwellian sense. And I'm glad to see like a, a big influx of, of pieces over the last year saying actually that this isn't the way forward. 
And I think the sort of mass surveillance, the doxing, the, the critique of the original alleged crime is so much worse than than the kind of um, the alleged crime in the first place, um, providing it's not something too drastic. But one example that springs to mind for me is people laughing at a woman at a baseball game, contacting her place of work. I think there's this culture now where we're actually kind of rejecting this sort of mass surveillance or just accepting that we're flawed things happen and kind of moving on on from that retaining that idealism that humans are never going to be perfect mass surveilling them and and kind of having this sort of repertoire of of dirt on each other isn't the best way forwards yeah definitely and and with that kind of thing with the internet there's the speed element as well I think like obviously when before things would not have moved so quickly with social media but now it's like you, you can have these pylons that just happen immediately or a video will be filmed in one place and suddenly it goes around the world in about, you know, the space of an hour. And and I think that speed element, I wanted to bring some of that to the dump as well because she's, she's the narrator is quite surprised when the dump happens just three months later from when she had originally heard about it and was feeling so strongly about it and suddenly everything gets accelerated. And I think that's definitely true in the digital age, like everything happens so fast. Have you, I mean, this is not, not really a literary question, but have you noticed that in terms of news cycles at The Guardian? Like th- The things literally just kind of appear and then disappear within a day. Yeah, moment, you yeah. can feel like that. It does feel like the news is really hyper-accelerated now. Mm. I mean, in the last year, how many prime ministers have we had and the Queen died and we got a new king? And it does feel... I think the important thing is to kind of be able to take a step back and just, you know, fully comprehend the things that are happening to you. When you're actually in the newsroom, sometimes it can be a bit hard because you're kind of performing a function you're getting the newspaper out or you're you're getting the story up um so I, I definitely try and just have some time to decompress and think oh actually we just changed governments just then or, or this mm. huge disaster happened somewhere and just trying to fully comprehend what has happened um but I mean all of that is also a great inspiration for short stories as well and I'm sure the dump probably came the idea of the dump probably came from something I had read in the news and I do try and keep notes about interesting stories that I read or you know just ideas to be able to inspire something new mm. one one thing I have, have been thinking about and I think I've mentioned this uh, this to you before the narrator in the dump works in the art world in sky blue you know it's about conceptual art is there a reason that you know the art world keeps reappearing in your fiction? What's your connection with with that that space? Mm. Yeah, I think it it definitely does um, appear in my fiction a lot and purposefully. I think mm. um, I really like reading books about art. I like I like art about other art. You know, whether that is a reference to a film or a TV show, or if it is something as physical as like in Sky Blue, where the characters are in an actual art exhibition. I I like stories where the person is responding to a piece of art. I think it's really interesting. I love Ali Smith. I think she writes really well about art. Um, Deborah Levy does it as well. Um, So those are the writers I'm kind of looking to um, when I'm thinking about how to kind of put an artwork in a story. Um, And I think for me as well, it's quite, I do find a lot of inspiration from looking at paintings and, and thinking about a way that a painter has worked and how a writer can kind of respond to that. So yeah, it is something that I consciously do. Um, and I think it, it can just kind of help you anchor yourself a bit more in the story as well. If you can kind of use your brain to physically imagine a painting and the painting in the dump is a Ben Nicholson one. And it, I, when I was looking at it, I was really thinking about the physical elements to it. Like it's, it's uses 
um, I think it's wood or it, there's kind of something that it's it's mm. scratched into and the paint the paint itself is very tangible and physical and I just really wanted to get that across into writing as well. Mm. It's brilliant. I I spoke to you a little bit earlier about the the sort of two styles of writing newsroom uh, fiction. So I just wanted to ask you more broadly, where does fitting writing fiction fit alongside journalism? Has it been something you've always wanted to do? Because you've had quite a lot of success kind of since turning towards short stories, uh, Aesthetica, Longlisted, um, Brick Lane as well? Yes, Longlisted, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a good question. Um, I think, so I've kind of, I've, I work in journalism, I am a journalist and, and that's kind of my day job, but I have always done fiction writing as well in my spare time and I find that they do sit quite happily next to one another, even though they're totally the opposite. Like what we were saying before about being happy to not know things like that's simply not to be done when you're writing a news story like you need to know who what where when why everything needs to be answered and I enjoy that style of writing and I enjoyed the kind of writing I was doing at Vice as well which was also although not straight news it was more kind of features magazine style it was you are answering question or you're interviewing someone and finding things out and there's definitely a formula to writing a news story or a magazine feature and I am definitely a writer who likes structure and, and formula and routine so I, I definitely enjoy that kind of writing but then in my fiction writing I've it's just like an absolute free-for-all like <laughs> when I'm writing when I'm working on something new I will just sit down and I'll give myself a word count and I'll just write and write and just not read back what I'm doing which is something I would never do as a journalist it's much more kind of precise and methodical so I think I quite like the have the chaos element of fiction in a way or at least when you're first writing fiction obviously when you go back and do the second, third, fourth draft, you are much more meticulous and you have to correct and, and be almost using your journalist head to think, is this story flowing in the way it should? But yeah, for me, they definitely do sit alongside one another. And as I said, I do really take inspiration from, I want to be engaged with the world, I think. I think I'm a, the kind of writer that I don't know if I would work that well, just purely being shut in my room, just writing <laughs> and not actually going out and experiencing new ideas, reading about things, talking to people. So it, I feel like it does feed my fiction, having this journalist side to my writing as well, even though they're, they're just completely different. Well, what is your process like then? Because you kind of mentioned it, you, you know, not hold up in your room all night then, but do you kind of write, you know, 300 words a day? Are you one of those types of people? Or are you someone who kind of just writes in big bursts at the weekend and then, and then comes back to it later? How does it work? Uh, I'm definitely an everyday kind of person. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like to um annoyingly I'm one of those people who likes to wake up early just you know sit down at my desk one of the mythical people yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I hate to say but I just I really enjoy it and I find doing it every day I like to write when I'm writing something new I'll give myself a word count and just do it every single day until that draft is finished when I'm editing it's not so much word count but I will try and sit at the desk every day and just work on it I just, I think I just really love repetition. Maybe this is the Don DeLillo fan <laughs> in me, but I just, I love doing things over and over again. And I find it very interesting when you do write every day, you can kind of look at the different texture of your moods and how you're feeling. Like on one day, I might be really, really into commas and like everything I'm writing, I'm like, where does the comma go? Oh my God, I, I'm obsessed <laughs> with them. And the next day it might be much more like, okay, today is a dialogue day. I'm really into dialogue. And I just, yeah, I find it really it's almost meditative when you do it in the morning as well. Like you are 
you're, you're having time for yourself to write something. I think everybody should do it, even if you're not wanting to write a short story or a novel. Mm. I think there's so much to just kind of spending those hours doing something. I think like yeah. so much of what we call talent is just having the kind of willingness to to sit in front of the page for longer than everyone else does. You know, like yeah. I think that's a big a big part of it, definitely. Um, should we do our literary dilemma? We got yes. to that point, the point, the point of the podcast, yeah. Yeah, so this is the segment where we ask writers and guests on the podcast questions that you, our listeners, have sent in about writing issues. Anyone who wants to send uh, a question in, please, please do. We're going to be running this podcast regularly uh, from now on, so you're more than happy to drop us a DM or respond when we announce our forthcoming guests. So we publish a wide range of essays as well. So we've talked a lot about short fiction today, but we do publish essays on all things sort of literary and cultural. And I was just wondering if you could give our listeners any sage advice about pitching culture pieces for any aspiring writers, journalists? Um, we, we had sort of a generalised question about this, especially given your professional background. Uh, good question. I think when you are writing a pitch, especially when I was first starting out writing pitches, I would think, well, it's just a pitch. It's, it's only a few lines. How hard can it be? I should just write it. But you almost need to approach the pitch with as much planning and detail as you would writing the actual piece. Obviously, it still needs to be very, very short. But I think you do need to have a very clear idea of what it is that you're trying to say. So I guess with culture, instead of being like, I want to write about the new Barbican exhibition, you, you could think, well, what's an angle that nobody else is going to have on this exhibition? Do I have a certain... Um, weigh into this artist that somebody else might not have like you know have I studied something that they're working in or do I come from a certain place that they come from and I'm happy to share that experience in my writing just so that you've got a kind of unique selling point to your pitch I think that's really helpful um, and when you've worked that out it's all about just honing the pitch writing it and rewriting it until you've really got your you know, what is your thesis, I guess, that you want to put across in the story? And it can feel quite annoying, I think, spending all that time on a pitch, which is something that's not actually going to be published. It might not even get you a story. But I think when your pitch is really good, when you've got those two lines that uh, really say what you want to say in your piece, should it be commissioned, that's something that you can refer back to and is really, really helpful when you're actually writing the piece as well. So you're not kind of meandering and going off in different directions. You know that this is what you want to write, this is what you're trying to get across. And obviously things could change when you actually start researching the story or, you know, you could unearth something that changes the whole direction of what you want to write. But I think having that starting point is really good. And also editors, at least in my experience, don't have a lot of time. So I think, and they, you know, they will be receiving lots of emails. So if you can say in a really succinct way uh, what it is you want to write about, why you're the person um, and what your unique point is, then I think you've got a much higher chance of being commissioned i think for our kind of final questions and i uh, i could never forgive myself if i didn't ask this you are from peterborough originally <laughs> i am it's yes. in your bio <laughs> my mum is from there grew up there i grew up near there um i think it's fair to say it's a place that has been somewhat neglected <laughs> in literature over the years so what i want to know is when is the kind of peterborough you know magnum opus coming out i, I you feel know? like you should write it you 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 know well, fellow yeah. Pet petroburgian is that, is that what they call this yeah, maybe, yeah you're right maybe i could do a kind of poetry collection kind of based around peterborough yeah i would definitely that's a read frightening it. thought but yeah yeah, yeah I, would, I think with peterborough it's the classic thing of being from there being a teenager who hated peterborough and wanted to move to london as soon as possible mm. you know for many years i've just kind of neglected it and just thought oh it's just peterborough who cares but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm like in my 30s now. I'm kind of thinking about Peterborough again and thinking, oh, actually, like the kind of literature I like writing, reading is about places that 
you don't you haven't really heard of mm. like, and it's always interesting to read a book or anything about somewhere that is overlooked and you know nobody really gives any thought to so yeah I mean never say never <laughs> I've passed through Peterborough but I've never actually been can yeah. you give a sort of vibe outline <laughs> well many people say that yeah because it's a real um it, it's a new town it used to be a cathedral town um, and then like in the 60s, it kind of got redeveloped, but not in a very aesthetically pleasing way, I would say. So, so a very big shopping centre in the middle called yes. Queensgate, which is kind of like a monstrosity. But also yeah. like it was the place to go. Yeah, yeah, the place to hang out when you're a teenager. Mm. Um, lots of dual carriageways, lots of roundabouts. We used to have a big John Lewis. Sadly, it closed. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, go and have a look <laughs> <laughs> next time you're passing through. Um, in terms of kind of your future plans, then can you tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? What kind of other projects have you got in the in the pipeline? Yeah, so I'm currently working on a novel, um, which is currently in its first draft, um, and I'm just really yeah in the weeds of doing that horrible first draft edit, but really enjoying it and hoping to yeah have something to show for that soon, and also hopefully more short stories as well. Amazing. We like to finish one more question by asking yeah. people. What was the last great thing you read, you saw, you watched? I presume not the newsroom, but um, <laughs> what would that be? That's a good question. Um, the last great thing I watched, well, I just watched a great documentary called Turn Every Page, uh, which is about the American writer Robert A. Caro, who's been writing this five-part biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. And he's been doing it like like he's in his 80s now, I think. And he is still working on the final book in this five-parter and he's been doing it for like years and years and years and everybody's worried about when it's going to come out but he just does the most meticulous research and he's just this amazing writer and the documentary is really great because it's about the relationship between him and his editor who's called Robert Gottlieb I think and it's made by his daughter so it's just I think for anybody who's a writer it's a really interesting watch um, to see the whole process of you know working away on something he's definitely someone who likes to be shut up in his room working away and you know how far you will go to create a piece of writing that's just perfect and the relationship between you and your editor and they have lots of arguments about semicolons and they're just <laughs> like these old kind of new york guys it's just yeah. it's a great film great thank you phoebe uh, for that and for coming on our podcast as well you can read phoebe's story the dump in our latest issue if you go to the london magazine shop you can buy june july for just six pound 95 or take out a yearly subscription, uh, which gets you six wonderful physical copies of the London Magazine a year. And you can use the code PODCAST for 20% off all purchases as well. Phoebe, Katie, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you in the next episode. Brilliant. Thank, thank you so you. much.